She wore a wedding dress every day for two and a half years. Now her wardrobe consists of a riding crop and a helmet. We'll talk to actress-turned-jockey Maria Falgioni. Plus, what's being done to improve the mental and physical well-being of all riders. We'll have all that and more coming up next here on In The Gate. They're in the gate. They're in the gate. In the gate. They're in the gate. It's a hit-bobbing finish! This is In The Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. You can download us from the iTunes Store or at TuneIn.com or the TuneIn app. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. Many athletes really want to be entertainers, and many entertainers really want to be athletes. Once in a while, the crossover does happen. Several athletes have left their sports to start successful acting careers, including Jim Brown and Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Some have gone into music, like Bernie Williams of the New York Yankees. What you don't see too often, though, are established entertainers giving up showbiz to put their bodies through the rigors of competing as an athlete. Many entertainers want to be athletes, but few actually do it. That's what makes Maria Falgioni's story so unique. In her first life, she was an actress who appeared in movies like Adulthood, some TV shows and commercials, and for a couple of years, she held the lead role in the well-known off-Broadway play Tony and Tina's Wedding. So... How does someone who's been putting on a wedding dress six days a week for two years wind up doing this? TMI comes after them from the fourth spot and coming on late is Lady Cloud. They're at the top of the lane and Mama Sugar has the lead. Mama Sugar down the center. TMI coming with a nice run. TMI, Mama's Sugar, but TMI suddenly just blows them away here. And TMI, an electrifying final ace, strides away to win it easy. Yes, that was Maria Falgioni, not in a wedding dress, guiding a four-year-old filly named TMI to win a a five-and-a-half furlong claiming race at Del Mar in late August. It was her first ever ride as an apprentice jockey. Clearly, Maria Falgioni is not nearly as dim-witted as the Tina Nunzio character she portrayed, but in this story, you don't get to dance with her either. But we do get to talk with her. Here's jockey Maria Falgioni, who joins us here on In The Gate. What on earth would make you want to take on the rigorous life of a jockey after being a successful actress? You know, I started to get kind of burned out with acting and just the business of it. And I was like, what can I do that's dumber than acting? I'll ride racehorses. That seems like the second worst choice. <laughs> well, I have a midlife crisis coming, too. I want to be a voiceover artist instead of a TV producer. So I guess this must be yours. Oh, perfect. Well, sort of. I mean, it kind of makes make sense for me. I um, I grew up riding horses, and that was really my first love, and then, you know, I always, always rode horses and always did theater, so, you know, after I was a working actor, I kind of just fell back on my other passion, which is riding horses, 
and I found the racetrack and just loved it. I mean, just absolutely fell in love with it. How can you not? You don't have to explain that to me. I did read that when you were a kid in South Carolina, you worked with, what, hunter-jumper classes? How'd that come about? I always did hunters and jumpers. I learned how to ride on my grandpa's farm in Nebraska, so I just kind of learned how to ride, you know. We were tough. We kind of did whatever. And then when I grew up in South Carolina, I got interested in jumping, much to my family's dismay. They thought it was ridiculous (laughs) with all the kind of pomp and circumstance that surrounds it. But I just loved it. I mean, the feeling of jumping a horse over a jump is probably the closest thing you can get to feeling like you're flying. And I had a lot of fun with it. Did the horse shows and all that, all that sort of stuff and did it in college. I was on the USC equestrian team at the University of South Carolina. And I was very lucky to be a Division I NC2A varsity athlete and ride horses. So that, you know, horses have really given me a lot in life. And then I was an actor after college and did that and then discovered the racetrack. Now, it's one thing to say, I want to change careers, I want to do this, but how did you actually go about making the career change to jockey? Well, it's kind of funny. I I was an actor in Los Angeles, and so one year for my birthday, just a few years ago, actually, for my birthday, I thought, you know what, let's go to the horse races. I've heard about Santa Anita. It sounds really pretty. Let's all just go there for my birthday. And the first race went off and it literally I mean just took my breath away I got goosebumps and I I couldn't breathe I was just so taken with it and as a lifelong equestrian I thought I have to do this one time in my life I have to gallop racehorse around the track one time in my life so I figured it out and um, through the help of Doug O'Neill actually I was able to do that and then once I did it once I was completely hooked and then as I became just sort of less and less into acting, I became more into the racetrack. So I started galloping and working horses, and then the trainer that I worked for, Mike Mikowski, and and uh, some of our owners actually brought it up to me. He said, would you be interested in riding a race? And I was like, are you kidding me? Absolutely. Let's do it. <laughs> Jockey and actress Maria Falgioni joining us here on In the Gate. Now, I don't think you did Tony and Tina's Wedding in New York, did you? Because I remember seeing it in New York, but you wouldn't have been in that production, right? Right, right. We ha- we did it in Vegas, and um, it's the same same directors and producers, so we had a lot of crossover between Vegas and New York. But yeah, I mean, that's the show, the show that you saw, that's the one that we did. Absolutely. So here you are with horsemanship experience, but no practical experience as a jockey in the afternoons. So let's start out in a nice, easy place to break in as a jockey. You know, Southern California, the deep end of the pool. What did you think about that? (laughs) Well, it's pretty ridiculous. I mean, I still can't, I still can't believe it. I mean, I still, I just can't believe how fortunate I am to be able to ride races on this circuit and in this company. When I ride a race in this circuit, I load in the gate with Hall of Famers, with people who are just, you know, go down in history as the best riders in the world. And it's pretty unbelievable. I feel so incredibly fortunate. I just can't even believe it sometimes. What did it feel like to win that first start in late August? I really, I mean, I really don't know how to describe it. It was truly unbelievable. 
I, I mean, I remember the whole thing, and, you know, we broke out of the gate, I had some trouble breaking out of the gate, and then uh, I just sat, and then I I remembered my plan, I, you know, we made a plan of how I was going to ride the race, and everything was kind of going according to plan, and then once we got around to about the quarter pole, the two guys in front of me started scrubbing, and my horse just kept going, I mean, I, I had so much, and I'm like, sound like you've yet gotten your head around it oh no i mean that that's a, a moment of a lifetime you know it was it was just unbelievable i i mean still i think about it and i just start giggling i'm like oh i can't believe that happened it was so great <laughs> now i've read that you've actually watched video of past races with stewards how common is that for jockeys to do well, here we do that. I don't know how they do it at other racetracks, obviously, because this is, you know, the only racetrack I've really been at. But I think we have a really good program here to bring along apprentices because we meet for films once a week. We're a close-knit group. We talk about what is working for us. You know, working out-wise, we go over our races. And we also have access to just such an incredible jockey colony the journeymen here are so helpful and, you know, I go over races with Martin Pedroza and Mike Smith and Gary Stevens and Kent Sormo and they're just Maldonado. I mean, they're all so helpful and we sit down and break down races and talk about how I rode my race or what they did in their race. And I mean, just to have access to that kind of knowledge and expertise is just incredible. Now, you mentioned Mike Mikowski. You've been working for him, and he pointed out that apprentices like you can't ride two-year-olds or first-time starters until you've won five races. He said he's also been careful to wait to put you on a horse going two turns or on the grass until he says you can handle it. Now, it seems like you've ridden sporadically in the afternoons, a little here, a little there. What are your goals about trying to increase the schedule? Well... I mean, right now, I'm kind of just taking it as it comes, and we discuss the horses that I ride and kind of come up with a plan, because I am also an exercise rider, and I I really like that. I think that it is advantageous to me where I am right now to be able to ride the horses every day that I'm going to ride in a race, or at least to work them in the morning, just because of my greenness in the afternoon. But I don't, I mean, I don't really know. We're just going to kind of see where it goes, and so far, so good. I mean, I, I'm having an absolute ball, and things have been pretty good so far. Well, I don't think there was a flak jacket under all those wedding dresses or a helmet as part of the headpieces, but they seem to be a permanent part of your wardrobe in your new career, and we wish you all of the best. Thank you so much for a few minutes. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. 
We're going to take a short break here on In the Gate, but when we come back, a study that's being done to help improve the physical and mental well-being of all jockeys. You'll be interested to hear the results, so don't go away. Welcome back to In the Gate. When your mother told you to eat your vegetables when you were a kid, you probably didn't think that what you eat would affect things like your mental, not just your physical, well-being. Your mother probably said something about cavities in your teeth, but not necessarily your ability to hold or perform a job. But that's exactly the gospel that Daniel Martin has been studying and preaching in England. For the past two years, Daniel Martin has been tasked with increasing public knowledge about jockeys as athletes. The goal has been to study their physical and psychological challenges the way we do with other mainstream athletes. Mr. Martin's study has been funded by the British Horse Racing Authority and Liverpool John Moores University in association with the Professional Jockeys Association. The first qualitative results of the project came out recently, and we welcome Daniel Martin to In the Gate to discuss those findings. One of the focuses of your study was the practice of jockeys having to make weight. Now, we all know that jockeys eat very sparingly in order to stay light. What is new about what you have found? Welcome back to In the Gate. When your mother told you to eat your vegetables when you were a kid, you probably didn't think that what you eat would affect things like your mental, not just your physical, well-being. Your mother probably said something about cavities in your teeth, but not necessarily your ability to hold or perform a job. But that's exactly the gospel that Daniel Martin has been studying and preaching in England. For the past two years, Daniel Martin has been tasked with increasing public knowledge about jockeys as athletes. The goal has been to study their physical and psychological challenges the way we do with other mainstream athletes. Mr. Martin's study has been funded by the British Horse Racing Authority and Liverpool John Moores University in association with the Professional Jockeys Association. The first qualitative results of the project came out recently, and we welcome Daniel Martin to In the Gate to discuss those findings. One of the focuses of your study was the practice of jockeys having to make weight. Now, we all know that jockeys eat very sparingly in order to stay light. What is new about what you have found? I guess the re my research is more about why jockeys make the weight the way they do. So previous research... Some of it done at, at John Moores University with my, my colleague, Dr. George Wilson. Um, we've got a really good understanding of how they make weight and the implications on, on health and on performance. So the unique strand or the unique element of my research was why do they still do it the way they do despite there being some really good support networks and some, some good support services in the UK available to them. And what basic elements of a good diet are jockeys most lacking? First and foremost, is that's just energy. Every individual's got a, a basic requirement of, of energy intake to, 
facilitate just the most basic of physiological function, so organ function. And one of the other things is, is bone health and bone metabolism. So in terms of jockeys eating minimally to make weight, they're not actually achieving the required calorie intake just as for normal health. So forget about performance for now. They're not even achieving the, the required energy intake to facilitate organ function, hormone profiles, and, and bone turnover. And then also there's, you know, indicate, as we were speaking about Kieran Fallon earlier before the chat, mental health and, and mental well-being as well. Well, okay, to play devil's advocate, let's say, if a jockey is lacking certain nutritional elements, why wouldn't that jockey take a pill or a supplement to get the benefit without the extra calories from eating real food? It would help them maintain weight and still perform their jobs, right? Theoretically, into the micronutrient intake, I guess you could, but as a promised nutritionist, it's always a food-first approach. So although a pill may give you individual micronutrients food itself has a a much wider profile in terms of of, uh, energy intake and micronutrient intake so in terms of of supplements some jockeys do go for for, for, um, food supplements and nutrient supplements but we as nutrition professionals actively try to deter them from doing that and to use food to facilitate energy intake and micronutrient intake and not to mention the satiety so the feeling of fullness from taking just had a handful of pills is nothing so it doesn't, you don't get over the feeling of hunger so depending on how mentally resilient towards food some jockeys are they can take supplements but they'll still end up snacking on on foods which quite often are, are calorie dense and high in high in calories which then contributes to poor weight management and potentially weight gain now you were talking about a more holistic view of jockeys behavior what trends have you determined about the physical and mental health as relates to adverse effects on their well-being? So I guess that's from, from previous research. Um, so I alluded to bone health earlier on. So previous studies suggested that around 60% of jockeys are suffering from what we call osteopenia, which is like a stage on bone disease or the precursor to osteoporosis, which we refer to as brittle bone disease. Um, and the unpublished data that we've got at John Moore's, we get a lot of jockeys coming through um, and having DEXA scans. And, and our figures are similar to that as well. They're up ever so slightly, around 66% um, are getting scores of, of osteopenic or, or worse. And then in terms of energy or, or a lack of energy intake, um, we allude again to the, to the physiological functioning or lack of or, or the, the negative impacts on, on physiological functioning and bone health being one of them. And then in terms of mental health and well-being, it's a, it's a really um, contemporary issue in the UK and it's something that the horse racing industry in the UK has, has sort of really sat up and, and take notice of over, over the last 12 months. And there's a lot more education and a lot more awareness of the support services that are available. One of the studies that my colleague George Wilson did at John Moore's, he did a, he did a case sort of pre and post um, a nutrition intervention. And beforehand, uh, the jockey in the study was um, self-reported high levels of mental fatigue and feelings of anxiety and depression but with nutrition a clever nutritional intervention so we're consuming the right amount of calories and spread evenly and um, throughout the day of the right macronutrient profile after the nine week period of the diet those levels you know the levels of mental fatigue and angst had reduced but then the positive emotions of vigor actually increased um, beyond the normal levels so it shows that food can influence mental well-being as well. 
By the way, a second British study on jockeys unrelated to Mr. Martin's has also shown that 30% of jockeys have reduced bone density compared with only 2.5% of men generally in a similar age bracket. Daniel Martin, who is a member of the Professional Jockeys Association nutrition team, joins us here on In the Gate. He's the first incumbent of the Jockey Nutrition and Welfare PhD program at Liverpool John Moores University in England. Now, you're trying to spread the word about the health risks of dramatic and repeated weight loss among jockeys. Don't you think they know all of that? Not necessarily. So the one of the key findings or one of the key outcomes from, from our research was the lack of nutrition education across the whole of the horse racing industry. So although it has improved in the last um, year or so, um, starting at the, at the, at the coal face of the industry with the jockeys, there's still a lot more that can be done and there's some huge areas for improvement and then the support network around them so the agents and the trainers and the, and the chief executives of the race course that effectively provide the food for them is actually a very limited knowledge within the sport itself of the adverse effects of nutrition on health and mental well-being the academic or the academia surrounding it is it is now actually starting to become really well populated but it's about getting that message out of the textbooks and out of the literature and disseminating that down into the industry. And that's one of the that's one of the key challenges that we face over the next couple of years, I think. Well, how do you do that? Is it word of mouth? Is it TV advertising? Is it on? How do you do it? I think it's got to be multifaceted and a lot of different levels. And that's actually the the next phase of what the PhD is entailing the the creation of a, a holistic, multi-levelled education platform that's specific for the horse racing industry. So it will be perhaps some redevelopment and reformation of the licensing process of young jockeys in the in the two racing schools in the UK, having more exposure through digital marketing or simple posters up in, in and around the weighing rooms. Bearing in mind, horse racing takes place 363 days of the year in the UK. And I think social media is probably the most attractive and possibly the biggest platform that we can, we can get by with jockeys. They use their mobile phones every day for booking horses, um, yeah, booking rides with their agents. So if we can tap in um, in an effective way that jockeys are going to buy into it on a series of levels, um, I think that's how we're going to get the message across. What kind of discussion have you had with the British Horse Racing Authority about your findings? Um, well, so they're, they're co-funding it, so obviously they're, ex- they're extremely interested in, in, in the outcomes of this. So all being well, um, at the end of the of the PhD and the end of the research process, um, we'll use the findings to hopefully redevelop the, the education provision or improve the existing education provision at the, at the racing schools. And we hope as well, I say, again, given the amount of time that jockeys are spending at the race courses, change the rules so there's a, we can redevelop and improve the provision of food that's actually at the race courses. So we're not just telling jockeys what's good to eat, um, and how to make weight and how to maintain weight safely during the licensing process. When they go out there into the into the industry and they're taking on races on a on a daily basis, the industry is actually facilitating the message um, we're getting across in the licensing courses by putting good food um, that's conducive to weight making and performance in in the weighing rooms. Well, yeah, but I could argue, for example, that it's not in the British Horse Racing Authority's best business interests to upset the apple cart when it comes to racetrack practices like assigning weights for each horse in each race. But yet the BHA was one of the backers of your study. Yeah, and I think this is 
um, a sign of a changing of the times. So I think historically, potentially the, the, the BHA have come under fire for, for not doing so much about it. But Dr. Jerry Hill, who's now been recently newly appointed chief medical advisor, since he's coming, he, he wanted to, to basically grab the ball by the horns, for not a better expression, and redevelop the sports science support network that's available for jockeys. And one of those facets is, um, is nutrition support. So they've pumped some money into research to ask the question, why are jockeys still doing it this way? And hopefully with the outcome, ultimately, of using the findings to facilitate potentially rule changes or changing the regulations to actually better help jockeys in the future. What will it take, Mr. Martin, for these kinds of findings to permeate their way into the culture of the sport around the world? One of the, again, one of the key findings from the release was actually sometimes that this issue is taken out of the jockey's hands and it's sometimes in the hands of some of the trainers and some of the agents. So I think educating those essential parties that effectively control what horses, jockeys race, which then leads to what, what weight they have to race at. Um, so I think it's not only dissemination to the BHA and to the jockeys on how to do it. Um, I think we need to get the message out to the agents and the trainers as well. And it may be something that we leave from the UK or it could be something that you do in the States. And once you've got a good model that works, I think it needs to be disseminated on a worldwide scale to conferences. So myself and two of my colleagues from John Moore's University were at a conference in Dubai only, only two weeks ago based around the health, safety and welfare of professional jockeys. And that takes place every two years. So dissemination and collaboration of these good practices needs to be shared on these platforms for then the delegates from all the different horse racing nations around the world to then take back to their to their old countries and hopefully disseminate from a top down in a top down fashion to help jockeys not just in, in our country or in the States, but for all the horse racing nations um, around the globe. Thoroughbred horsemen talk so often about the care they give to their horses. Now the care for their riders is the next step. Thank you so much for a few minutes, Mr. Martin, and continued success with this endeavor. No problem. Thank you very much for having me. Our thanks to Daniel Martin and to Maria Falgioni. I can't really blame Churchill Downs for what they just enacted, the banning of the daily racing form from being sold under the spires and at the fairgrounds too, though the practice clearly goes against the norm. The DRF is not just stats and past performance charts, they have a website now for advanced wagering. Their site and stats directly compete with Churchill's own products, Twinspires.com and the Brisnet offerings. Now, it's not fair if one company controls distribution and production. It can bar the competitive door with huge padlocks. Like if Comcast, which owns NBC, decided to corner the market by refusing to carry ESPN and Fox. That's not what Churchill's doing. They have no monopoly on anything but the world's most famous race. While I've knocked Churchill for many things, this move is simply business. Advanced wagering is a mighty competitive space. You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on SoundCloud as well. You can get us at TuneIn.com or the TuneIn app. You can get us on that little pink podcatcher app on your phone that you didn't even know you had. And now you can subscribe to In The Gate in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And you can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's In The Gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We'll see you next time.